You are listening to the Purpose Church High School Ministry Podcast. Whether this is your first episode or you've heard them all, God has something to say to you. Our vision is to see every student everywhere following Jesus, and we hope this message helps you take your next step in your faith. To learn more about our high school ministry, visit our website, purposechurch.com HSM, and check us out on Instagram at purposehsm. We hope you enjoy today's episode. The difference he has made in Paul's life is the difference he wants to make in everybody's life. Remember, I've told you this a hundred times, Paul hated Christians so much so that he, he oversaw the death of Christians. He persecuted them. He separated families. He imprisoned people who followed Jesus. He hated Christians. And then all of a sudden, he met Christ. And when he met Jesus, everything changed. Some of you remember that day. Some of you remember that moment. Some of you remember that experience when you met Jesus and everything began to change. Some of you are on the fence thinking, I don't know if I'm interested in this Jesus thing, and it's really good for us to remind you on the outset, Jesus is not just interested in becoming a checklist on your to-do schedule. Jesus is looking and interested in taking over your entire life. But that's a good thing. That's a great thing. And so Paul, Paul ends up giving, a, giving up a life of comfortability, persecuting the church, to all of a sudden building the church and being persecuted for that, being beaten, treating, tre- treated like a criminal because he believed that Jesus was worth it all the time. And you see, I think what Paul wants to deal with tonight is, is that most Christians are lopsided, most Christians are lopsided. Anybody know anyone? And don't raise your hand if you're next to this. Anybody know anyone whose like foot is like a little bit longer than the other one? Anyone ever met somebody like that? Like their foot is like a little bit longer than the other one, right? Or, or has anyone ever, has anyone ever uh, played that game where like you fill up a water bottle a little bit and you try to tilt it and you try to like get it to perfectly slant up, but it kind of tilts every time? Or, or have you seen an egg where if, if you tried to stand an egg up on its own, it's always going to fall to one side or the other? Christians oftentimes are just like that. That Christians are lopsided. They either err towards having really good theology. That just means understanding of God. That they think about God a lot. They understand all the right answers. They've been through all the classes. They've been to groups, to small groups, to studies. And they have a really good understanding of God. But their life doesn't reflect that at all. Or there's other Christians. There's other Christians who love serving and caring for people but it's not grounded in and backed by this deep understanding of God's grace and love for them. And so oftentimes their good works are a means to earn something that they already have in Jesus. It's a means to gain some favor from God that his loving, abundant grace has already given them. And so for most of us, me included, we're lopsided Christians. And what I think Paul wants to talk about is that when we have a real picture of Jesus, our lives will be radically responsive to that. That when you have a real picture of Jesus, your life will look radically different as it is in response to who and how big and how lovely and how good God is. 
Because that's where we're going tonight is, is we're going we're gonna to travel down two different roads. The first one is we're going to see how big and beautiful Jesus is. And then Paul is going to say, but we can't end there. I need you to transition into this new lane. I need you to get onto this new freeway where you understand that that big understanding of God is deeply connected to this crazy, radical way in which I'm calling you to live as a follower of Jesus. You see, for some of you, you need to ask yourself this question. How big is Jesus? How big is Jesus to you? And I hope this convicts you the way that it's convicted me. The size of your Jesus is determined by the boldness of your life. The bigness of your Jesus is determined by how radically responsive you live to his good news, to his gospel, to his love, and to his grace. And so for Paul, as we're going to see, Jesus is a really, really, really big deal. And because he's a really, really big deal, there's four really big radical things that Paul does. But first, let's start here. Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1, beginning in verse 15. Our first big idea is this. Jesus is entirely God, and Jesus is entirely human. What? Jesus is entirely God, and he is entirely human. This is the big picture that Paul wants to paint of who Jesus is. Find me in verse 15. Colossians 1, verse 15 begins this way. The Son, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God. The Greek word here for image is icon. That Jesus is the image of the invisible God. What Paul is trying to say here is you need to understand when it comes to Jesus and his relationship to God, they are exactly the same. If you flip open in an encyclopedia to God, the first entry is Jesus. That you can't understand God outside of Jesus. He is the perfect image. He's not a copycat. He's not a lookalike. He is God. See, Paul in the next few verses is going to blow our minds that Jesus is actually God. He was not just a good teacher. He was not just an interesting philosopher. He did not just have like these secret healing powers like Harry Potter. No, no. Jesus was actually God Almighty. And he says, you've got to understand him that when you look at Jesus and when you read about Jesus and when you connect with Jesus, you are connecting with the God who created the universe because Jesus is the exact image of God. But then he says, but then you need to understand, and this verse oftentimes gets misinterpreted by other religions, the firstborn over all creation. Some of the religions believe that Jesus was just a created being, that there was God and then God created Jesus. That is not what these words are saying. It is not saying that Jesus was the first creation. What it's saying is in relationship to us as humans, Jesus is before us. That in relationship to you and I, Jesus was before us. Jesus was our creator. That before any of us got here, Jesus was here with God in the beginning, creator of all things. Verse 16, for in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, things visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. 
See, Paul says if, if your Jesus is just a prophet or a philosopher or somebody that you're willing to listen to when it's convenient and easy and comfortable for you, then your Jesus is too small because Jesus was the creator of all things. And not only is he the creator of all things, but that all things have their fullness. All things were created for Jesus. You know what this means? Your highest purpose in life is the worship of Jesus. A question we need to be asking ourselves in every moment is how can I worship Jesus in this moment? How can I worship Jesus in this relationship? How can I worship Jesus in this conversation that I'm having? How can I worship Jesus when I'm around my parents or around my boyfriend or girlfriend or when I'm around the sports team? How can I worship Jesus? Because your ultimate fulfillment as a person, you at your best, your best life now, everything that you need and want and eagerly must have is found in the worship of Jesus. What that means is in every moment, even if you don't feel it, and even if it's the harder solution, and even if it means you turning from some friends that are going in a bad direction, that when you choose the worship of Jesus over the worship of yourself, you are exactly and precisely doing what you were created to do. That from the very beginning, you were created for all things to be worshiping to Jesus. So this calls into question our lives. Students, I gotta ask myself, is how I'm thinking about that person worshipful to Jesus? Is how I'm interacting with my wife worshipful to Jesus? Is how we are treating each other as a community worshipful to Jesus? When we alienate each other or when we say, ah, I've got my clique, I've got my group, no, we don't let people in, that is not worship of Jesus. We, um, we last week had something happen here in this community. There, were, there was somebody in this community, somebody we love and care about, who had her wallet stolen. And this was devastating for us because we exist as a community to worship Jesus. And when that kind of stuff happens in our community, it flies against who we are. That's not who we are. And if you're in this room and you know anything about that or, or you want to talk about that, I want to invite you to come up and talk to me because there's a way that we can reconcile this. But I want to challenge us as a community that whether it's stealing each other's physical things or it's stealing opportunities to love and to serve each other and to care for each other, that we are missing out on the opportunity to worship Jesus. And whenever we choose anything other than worship of Jesus, we are choosing to worship ourselves, and that always ends with death and destruction. And Jesus literally, I mean, Paul, Paul says everything, heaven and earth, visible, invisible, whether thrones or powers, rulers, authorities, all things were created through Jesus and ultimately for him. This means that in your relationships, you can worship Jesus. In your friendships, you can worship Jesus. That when you're private by yourself, you can worship Jesus. As long as the way in which you are worshiping him is acceptable to him. It's something that is in line with scripture. But then Paul continues. 
Verse 17, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Um, when it says that he's before all things, this is so key because sometimes you and I, man, the pride in us says, oh God, you just don't understand this situation. You don't understand how I feel about this person. You don't understand the issue I'm dealing with. And he's going, homie, I'm before you. I was before you. You think you're so hip. You think you're so trendy. You think you're so clued in. You think you understand everything. Man, I've got a better view of what's going on in your life than even you do. The question is, will you trust me? Will you trust me? And then it says that he holds all things together. That he holds all things together. I am, whenever I'm flying, anyone else afraid of airplanes? Anyone else afraid of airplanes? I'm terrified of airplanes. I always pray this scripture. I'm like, Jesus, hold this thing together. You know what I mean? Like hold, like keep this thing together. But as I was studying it this week, this week and thinking about it, I actually think there's a deeper application here. I think when we believe that Jesus is big enough to hold all things together, what we are saying is that Jesus can make sense of the brokenness that you're going through. The pain and the tragedy and the struggle and the fight and the anger within you and the bitterness or the pride, whatever it may be, that thing that you're going, that was absolutely wrong. How could that have ever happened to me? Well, Jesus when he holds things together, it means he has the ability to make sense of what is not sensible. That he has the ability to do something with the brokenness beyond what you and I can see in this moment. I think for some of us, we need to be reminded that God can give us peace right now in whatever turmoil and struggle we're in. Even if we don't know what the solution or the answer will be, Jesus can hold the thing together even when it looks like it's busting at the seams. Have you ever been there? Have you ever been in one of those moments where it feels like everything is coming unglued? Well, the Jesus we serve is so big that he can even hold that stuff together even when it feels like it's unraveling before our eyes. And sometimes that takes faith. And sometimes that takes waking up and, and getting up even when you're going, I don't want to wake up. I don't want to get up. I just want to stay in my bed. I want nothing to do with my life today. In fact, I wish I wasn't even here. Jesus has the power to hold things together if you'll trust him, if you'll have faith, if you'll believe that he can do that. He continues and he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead. This means that he was the first to rise. This means we will resurrect too. That when you die, when you die, once, uh, once the age that is the one we are in, once life here on earth ends, that it is not the end, but that you will rise if you are a follower of Jesus and you will spend eternity with him. Because Jesus modeled that for us. And then he continues so that in everything, Jesus might have the supremacy. This means that Jesus is number one always. He is always number one. Verse 19, for God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. So means again, Jesus is not just like a sidekick, right? He's not, he's not Batman, or he's not Robin to like God's Batman. You know what I mean? Like he's not his sidekick, that Jesus is 100% God. It, it reminds me of, there's a passage, Hebrews chapter one, verse three, it says this. Hebrews chapter one, verse three says this. 
The sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. You see, Jesus is exactly God. But then check out verse 20. And through him, so after Paul has painted this really big picture that Jesus is the image of God, that he's the firstborn over all creation, that everything came through him and is for him, that he's supreme, that he's number one, that he's big, that there's nothing we could ever do to minimize him, that he is absolutely huge. Then Paul says, and here is how God chose to leverage all of that power, all of that strength, all of that holiness. Here's what God decided to do with that. And through him, through Jesus, to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. This is what God did with all of his power. He laid it down. And God said, I'm gonna use all the power I have to reconcile, that means there's brokenness between us. And I'm gonna bring you back into a relationship with me. And through my shed blood, you see this is where Paul begins to say, Jesus is not just entirely God, he's actually entirely human, that it was through his sacrifice, through his actual blood, through his physical body, as he's about to say in a few sentences, that it was through that, that sin and death was done with so that you and I could have a relationship, so that we could be brought back, so that there could be nothing in the way of us and God, so that we might have peace. I wonder how many of you tonight, man, that's the one thing you wish you had was peace, that you can't fall asleep at night, you got things going on up here, man, you're just struggling and wrestling to know that Jesus leveraged all of his power so that you could have his peace and so that you could be in a perfect relationship with him. I mean, what does that tell you about his love and his grace over you? What does that tell you about how important and how valuable you are to him? Verse 21, once you were alienated from God and you were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. So God looks at us who are enemies to him. Every time we sin, we say, God, no thanks, I'll do my own thing, that we were alienated from him. We ran away from him. We rebelled, we were enemies. And God used all of his loving power and grace to make a way for you and I. And yet here's what every single one of us are tempted with. Every single one of us are tempted to run to another person when Jesus is going, I want you to run to me. Because the problem still remains. Well, then he continues, he continues, verse 23. If you continue in your faith established and firm and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel, the gospel, this gospel that you heard and that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven and of which I, Paul, have become a servant. Now here's where Paul takes a turn. And he says, this gospel, this good news, this message that God Almighty is Jesus and that he physically gave up his life for you, that he is perfect and holy and loving and gracious, and that he laid everything down so that you could be with him. That because of that good news, something has to change. 
Something has to be different. And check out what difference it has made in Paul's life. Verse 24. Now I rejoice in what I am suffering for you. So what's the radical response? What's number one radical response that Paul makes to the reality that Jesus is this big? Is he views his suffering as an opportunity to rejoice. That in light of what God has done for him. You see, Paul has not become numb to his sin and his brokenness. Paul has not forgotten his past. Paul is very aware that he was living in total rebellion to God. And because God looked at him in the middle of his rebellion and said, I can't get over how much I love you. And so I'm going to die for you. That truth, that gospel was so beautiful, is so beautiful. That Paul says, when I am in a season of suffering, I choose to rejoice. You guys, just today, just today, I was, this is so stupid to even tell you this. I was getting my car washed, and I needed to be back for a meeting at a specific time. And, and it kind of got messed up in the process. Like, they didn't do what I had paid for them to do or whatever. And I was late for this meeting, and I was angry, and I was rude. And you know when you're just, like, in a bad mood, something just happens, and it just kind of sets you off? And I was driving, and then I was literally thinking about this sermon that I'm going to give. And I'm like, Paul is literally being beaten because he believes in Jesus, and he chooses to respond with joy. I want some of that. I can't handle my car getting messed up without it ruining my attitude for a few hours. Maybe it's because my Jesus is so small. Because when I think about what Jesus suffered on my behalf, I can't help but go, whatever suffering comes my way, I'll feel it, and it'll hurt, and we'll mourn with each other. But Paul chooses to look at the suffering in his life, and he's actually suffering for these people In a way, he's saying, like, you're kind of the reason I'm here. And yet his response is to rejoice. You see, if you're going to radically respond to the gospel, number one, you look at your sufferings as an opportunity to rejoice. There was a woman who spoke here at the church a while ago, and um, she had written a book on joy. And at the, uh, right right as the book was about to come out, um, she was diagnosed with breast cancer. And she remembers, she, she was telling us that she went into this MRI machine and she's in this MRI machine and she's just going, Lord, what are you doing? And she was afraid she was gonna die. And I mean, life was really bad for her. And then she, she had this thought as she was in the middle of this MRI, this machine around her in the worst place she never wanted to be. She had this thought. She said, I wonder how many people, I wonder how many people have worshiped Jesus from this MRI And she said, I want to start looking at all of the suffering in my life as portals for praise, as opportunities to rejoice. And so what if we looked at the sufferings that we are experiencing as opportunities to express gratitude and love to God because he's big, because he's huge, because he holds things together, because he's not done with our stories yet, because he has the ability to right wrongs, because he has the ability to tell better stories than we can even imagine in the moments that we find ourselves in. And so Paul radically responds to the gospel with rejoicing and sufferings. And I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, which is the church. I have become its servant. The second thing that Paul does to radically respond to the gospel is he serves 
and loves even when he doesn't feel it. He serves and loves even when he doesn't feel it. Students, many of you show up to HSM and you feel really connected to the people around you. But every week, new people show up. And they're asking a question as they walk in, does anybody care that I'm here? And some of you, maybe you go, well, I'd only talk to a new person if I like, really had a great day or if, or if I was really feeling it. Paul says he has become a servant to the church, even though it's brought him pain and agony. His desire to serve is not connected to his feelings. His desire to serve is connected to the bigness of his Jesus. That Jesus was willing to serve him, and so there's nobody that he is unwilling to serve. I want to challenge you to begin to think like this. If you want to be radical in your faith, if you want to really respond to the gospel, when you show up here on Wednesdays or you see each other at church on Sunday, I want you to get off your phones and I want you to hold your head up and go, who can I talk to? Who can I connect with? Who needs love and encouragement right now? Who seems like they're kind of alone? Who can I serve? If we had that kind of community here, people would see the big Jesus that you're following. Number three, I have become its servant by the commission God gave me to present to the word, um, to present you to the word, sorry, to present to you the word of God in its fullness, the mystery that has been kept hidden for ages and generations, but is now disclosed to the Lord's people. To them, God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Number three is this. He is the one we proclaim, admonish, and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone fully mature in Christ. The third radical thing he does is he shares Jesus with everyone. That because his Jesus is so big and so good, he shares him with everyone. Admonishing, that means warning people. Teaching, that means telling them about God, that he doesn't care who you are. Paul is gonna tell you about the difference Jesus made in his life. Students, let me ask you this. When was the last time you shared with somebody who doesn't know Jesus what Jesus has done in you? When was the last time that you boldly said, hey, I just gotta tell you what God's been doing in my life? You see, Paul goes crazy on this kind of stuff because his Jesus is big. And then very, the very last one. To this end, I strenuously contend with all the energy Christ so powerfully works in me. Number four way that Paul radically responds to the gospel is he doesn't live based on his own energy and strength, but he is completely dependent on the Holy Spirit. Friends, the Holy Spirit is not just this like, woo, like ghost, like around Halloween time. The Holy Spirit is a person. The Holy Spirit is God Almighty who lives inside of every Christian and who you and I can depend on, who you and I can reach out to, who you and I can pray to and say, Holy Spirit, help me because I'm struggling right now. Holy Spirit, help me to love and serve and to see my suffering as an opportunity to rejoice. Holy Spirit, help me. I love that Paul ends it here because there is no way it is impossible to see your sufferings as an opportunity to rejoice, to serve disconnected from your feelings, and to be boldly, fearlessly sharing Jesus without depending on the Holy Spirit. It doesn't happen. You see, I love what Paul does here is he says, look, all of those radical responses are not things you need to like work on. They're things that happen when you are connected 
to Jesus. Let me end with this story. Some of you have heard this before, but I'll share it again. Charlie and I were uh, going for his first plane ride. And uh, I woke him up in the morning and we went, to, we went through security and we got to the section where, all of, uh, where our gate was and everyone was sitting around us and it was about 6 a.m. And, and everybody was tired and they had their headphones on and wanted, didn't want to be here at all. But Charlie, he's obsessed with airplanes. He loves airplanes. He can't stop talking about airplanes. And for the very first time, Charlie saw an airplane. He ran up to that giant glass mirror and he, he jammed his face. Like it was like suctioning his face, right? Like he, he sees the airplane and he takes it all in and he's, he's amazed that he's literally this close to a real life airplane. And I'm watching him and I'm like, he's gonna start seizing. You know what I mean? Like this is not good for him. And his eyes get real big and real big. And then finally, it's almost like he can't contain it anymore. And so he runs back into the center where everyone is just seated, seated, waiting for the next thing, bored out of their minds. And, and Charlie, he literally screams, planes, planes. He just screams at the top of his lungs. And everyone's like, what is going on? And, and Charlie runs back up to the glass window and he takes it all in again. And he's overwhelmed that a real life plane is in front of him. And then he runs back and he literally does this like seven times. I mean, it was amazing. And you see, when you're a picture of Jesus, that as you spend time with him, as your love for him and your understanding of his love and grace for you just expands and bursts and blows up and you get overwhelmed by it, you won't be able to help running back into the center of your world and your life and your circumstances and screaming, Jesus, Jesus. You see, the goal is not to muster up enough strength to scream Jesus. The goal is to get as close as humanly possible possible to Jesus and then allow him to change you. And then that radical response will come unglued in you. What if we were those kinds of radical Christians? How would this place, how would our families, how would our communities change? I want you to spend a little bit of time in small groups talking about that. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for tonight. God, I thank you that your scriptures are very clear that you are Lord Almighty, that there's no substitute. Doesn't matter what any other religion or friends or family or anyone else says, Jesus, you are king, you are everything. And God, I pray that you would blow our minds with how profound and gracious and good and kind and forgiving and powerful you are. And then would you help us to live radically responsive to that? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Hey, if you're... Uh...